Would you please turn with me to the scripture verse for today, Amos chapter 8, and of course it is the whole chapter this week. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord God said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that they make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all rise like the Nile, and be tossed about, and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God gives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Good morning. Just a uh, forewarning, today's chapter is of judgment, and so whenever one preaches or teaches from it, it's not always pleasant. And so if you are to respond or react to something that I say, please go back to the scriptures I reference, read them, and pray about it, and pray for me, and then we'll talk and we'll reason together. But I just wanted to throw that out there, because the chapter we're going through today is about judgment. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and God, we believe in teaching the whole counsel of God here, and we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we have faith and hope that your spirit would speak through your scripture, your word, as we study it. And so as we go through this chapter and these verses, Lord, we pray that you're in it. I ask God that I don't misrepresent you, that your grace, your love comes through despite a servant that is sinful and I have my own issues. And so I ask God that those things would be overlooked and that you would be able to use me. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, last week we looked at the interaction between the prophet Amos and the priest in Bethel, Amaziah. Amaziah was a political representative, a religious representative of King Jeroboam. And he represented 
the religious establishment of the day, but he misrepresented Amos. And so he told Amos to go away because the news that Amos brought to him challenged his place in King Jeroboam's realm in his kingdom. Now, Amos was a shepherd, right? a shepherd from Tekoa, the southern kingdom, Judah. And so no pedigree as to being a prophet, no experience, no education. There's no noteworthy credential for Amos to be a prophet. Now, who was Amaziah? Amaziah was a well-educated man. In order to be priest, to be appointed priest, he would have been really well-educated, very well-networked. In order to be a politician of Jeroboam, he would have known folks to try to get that post. And so his role of a politician and a priest was in jeopardy as Amos was coming and sharing this news. And so he wanted to keep things the way they were because he had a pretty comfy life. And so having someone like Amos come through and prophesying threatened the establishment of that day. And even though Amos was delivering a message of faithfulness and justice, Amaziah and guys like him saw it as a threat. Now a question or questions about faithfulness and justice. Think about this. How will there be any peace without justice? How will there be any harmony with God without faithfulness. Now Luke chapter 2 verse 14 usually credited to be a Christmas verse and we're going to throw this out there this morning because it relates. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See we hear a lot about peace. The world desires peace. But they want peace without giving glory to God. There's no way for the world to experience peace on earth if the world is not right with God. An observation about last week's message, Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, that wasn't shared last week, and I want to share it today because we're in chapter 8, is the placement of that interaction between Amos and Amaziah. That interaction between Amos and Amaziah is sandwiched in between Amos's third vision in Amos chapter 7, verse 7, and his fourth prophetic vision in Amos chapter 8, verse 1. It's right in the middle there. Now the first vision is in Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and it reads this. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, and then we go into Amos' intercession, and God relented. The second prophetic vision is in verse 4, chapter 7. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Amos interceded, and God relented. The third prophetic vision is in verse 7, chapter 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, in this vision, the Lord said in verse 8, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. No relenting there. God is doing this one. And then lastly, the fourth prophetic vision in chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now the first two prophetic visions were of disaster and God relented. 
With the third vision, the plumb line, God was going to judge using the plumb line. And it's important to understand this sequence of prophetic visions because those are the visions that lead us to this fourth vision, a summer fruit basket. And this is a vision of judgment. Verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? All the other visions God showed him, and this time God said, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. What is going on here? I thought a basket of summer fruit would have been a nice thing. <laughs> the giving of an offering is a religious practice, right? We give offerings here. And amongst the Jews, it was customary to give offerings of fruit. So they would bring this fruit to God with the expectation that God would reciprocate with some like goodness and blessing. Now you look at verses 1 and 2, it's this basket of summer fruit. Meaning, this is ripe fruit. Really ripe fruit. It's so ripe that it's not going to last very long. God said in verse 2, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Now, this would have been shocking to Amos's audience because the offering to God was rejected and it would be met with judgment. And so their idea of God's reciprocation of something good, it's gone. That's not there. Now, something that is missed in the English translation from the Hebrew is this wordplay within these verses. And it's kind of fun if you dig into these sorts of things. The English words for summer fruit were translated from the Hebrew word kaiitz. The English words for the end were translated from the Hebrew words kates. So you hear the similarities there? Kaiitz, kates. So when said in the Hebrew, it's kind of interpreted something like this. You brought me your summer fruit offerings. I have news for you. You are the summer fruit. You are the summer fruit offerings. You bring offerings of ripe fruit, expecting something good in return, but you're just like that summer fruit, that ripe fruit where you're close to rotten and you're going to be thrown out. The end is near for you. And just as the time before, decomposition for ripe fruit, that time is really short, right? When your bananas go brown, they're going to go brown quick. So is the time for Israel before their destruction. So when God asked Amos, what do you see? Amos said, a basket of summer fruit. Kayitz. Right after God said, Kates. The end. You're right. The end. That's what you see. You see the end. The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. Summer fruit, ripe fruit, is really close to be thrown out. And a similar judgment will come upon a rotting Israel. And God was so patient with them. God was so long-suffering. And He gave them opportunity after opportunity to return to Him. We studied this in Amos chapter 4, didn't we? In Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, God gave them opportunity after opportunity to return to Him. And it's obvious that they didn't because God repeated this phrase, Yet you did not return to me five times in those verses. And he was working with them, trying to get them to return, trying to get them to repent, but they didn't. Now in Amos chapter 4, God didn't withhold rain and food and life, bread, out of cruelty. 
He wasn't doing that to be mean to them. He wasn't malicious. He was trying to get them to return to him, to wake them up and to remind them that he's alive. And that bread and that water and that food, that life comes from him. And without him, we don't have those things. The people just became more ungrateful and they became more evil. That God needed to show them that if I just leave you to your own ways, independent of me, not reliant on me, you are going to destroy yourselves. That in order for goodness to come over them, they have to call out to God. And God had to go to extreme measures to point this out to them and to attempt to rescue them. And He had to do this series of serious interventions. Yet they did not return to Him. They remained in their evil ways, stubborn to change, hard-hearted, blinded by their own carnality, and God's patience ran out. And at the end of God's patience, at the end of God's long-suffering, is this, His wrath. And this is what it came to in verse 3. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence, wailing, death, silence. And this is the picture that we're going to get to in verses 7 through 10. We're going to get to those in a little bit, but let's first listen to what Amos had to say in verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Question for us, application for us. What are we to hear this morning? In our world of consumerism and materialism, what must we hear today? See, Amos has a lot to say to us. We will be held accountable for our actions against God and against humanity. God will not sit idle as we value profit over justice. You look at verse 4 again. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. See, this is a picture of that rotting fruit. That rotting fruit that's going to be thrown out. Now, let's take a look at the rest of this picture. Verse 5. Saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the epoch small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. What is this a picture of? This is unjust treatment of the needy and the poor. It's a society that places profit, money, over justice. And that's a scary world to enter into with God because God is a God of justice. Now what is justice? And essentially, it's this. Justice is the right and good relationship between you and God and between you and others. Just in a little summary. And I don't think that we just put profit over justice in regards to our relationship with people, we put profit over justice in our relationship with God. Look at verse 5. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? See, these are folks that are in church and they're just thinking something else and they can't wait to go do their thing. Right? They're in here. They're religious people. But the priority wasn't to worship God. They were in a hurry with these religious things so that they can actually get it out of the way and go back to their own business. Now, during days of celebration and the Sabbath, their mind wasn't on God at all. It was on their money. 
it was on how they can conduct their business and make more. They were physically present at the church, but there was their presence, their mind presence, their energy presence was somewhere else. And we've all had our minds wander elsewhere, haven't we, as someone is speaking? Maybe some of you right now have your minds somewhere else. This message is for you. <laughs> now, having your mind somewhere else during a church service is not always bad. Right? It's not always bad. If you have a loved one who is sick, it's good and right to have your mind with that loved one. To be thinking about that loved one. To be praying for that loved one. It's a different thing if you're thinking about the Giants and the baseball game or whatever, especially because you're in Oakland. I mean, come on. What's that all about? That's a sin in itself. The type of wandering, it's a type spoken about in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's what occurred in verses 5 and 6 with Israel. And God won't stand for that offense from people, church, society. So these guys put profit over justice, profit over God, and thirdly, they put profit over morality. Take a closer look at verse 5. That we may make the epah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. These were dishonest persons. They cheated people by selling less than what people really purchase. And they were giving out these false quotes, charging more than what was really on the scales. And these were highly religious people. They celebrated the new moon ceremonies. They observed the Sabbath. But they were rotten people, corrupt in their business practices. Now, if God were to look at each one of us, who does he see in our church today? Are any of us like the Israelites in the 8th century B.C.? How is your heart with God, your relationship with God this morning? And I'm not talking about how religious you are because obviously you're here, right? And obviously that wasn't working for the Israelites in the 8th century B.C. either. How are you really doing with God? And have you put profit or other things over justice? Have you put profit or other things over God? Have you put profit or other things over morality? And lastly, let's take a deeper look at how they put profit over people. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So people sold into slavery by those who were in power, who had all the money because they had this debt that they couldn't pay or because they were late in paying that debt where the people who had a lot didn't exercise mercy towards people who had so little. Is this anything like our society? Where those who have so much aren't helping those who have so little. I might get myself in trouble here with some commerce and economics and things like that. But isn't this what we're doing with our manufacturing? We want our goods so cheap here in first world nations and westernized nations. So there are people, there are children who are making our goods at a wage that is criminal in third world countries. So that we can purchase goods at an affordable price or a price that we think is reasonable. So people cheat those in the third world countries of their wages. Then they come back to the first world countries to sell their goods manufactured in third world countries for prices with such a wide profit margin that they could be paid a better wage. But they're not. 
and then they bring them out here and they sell it to us and we're wondering that this is a $40 t-shirt. Are you serious? And so they're kind of taking it to us too. We're paying this huge amount of money for this t-shirt that costs pennies over there to make and so they're cheating both sides. Business without justice. Now here's the picture of wailing, death, and silence in verses 7 through 10. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Whoa! I will never forget any of their deeds. That is the sinner's life without Jesus. Your sins will never be forgotten by God because He's a God of justice. He's holy. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is an eclipse. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and at the end of it like a bitter day. If you ever wanted to know what a picture of being forsaken by God looks like, here it is. And if you don't believe that anyone can be forsaken by God, look at verses 7 through 10. When God let the people have their own way. Nations, churches, people can be forsaken by God. God's patience has an end. God's long suffering has an end. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul writes about this. I want to share with you these verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I didn't say that. That's God's word. Word for word, ESV. I did not put anything in there myself. And God is not cruel. Sometimes I wonder if he has forsaken our nation, forsaken parts of our world, some of our churches, some of the people who claim to love him but don't live according to his word. We've become so arrogant. Just like those in the 8th century B.C. and just like those that Paul addressed in Romans chapter 1, believing that there is no God, that we don't need him. We've become increasingly ungrateful and evil in the eyes of God. And perhaps God is reminding us that if we are left to our own ways, we'll destroy ourselves. I think there have been many things, things perceived even as bad, that God has allowed to happen in our lives, in our church, in our nation, to lead us back to Him. But just like in Amos chapter 4, yet you did not return to me. If we truly want peace, if we truly want goodness, harmony, joy, we have to return to God, to call out to Him, to repent. I lament that we won't. That we won't as a nation. That some in the church won't repent from their evil, sinful ways. That hearts will remain hardened and we will be led by the world more than we are led by the Spirit. And I have to remind you, biblically, that God's patience runs out. His long-suffering runs out. And at the end of those things is His wrath. The book of Amos speaks loud and clear to the church and to our world. It's an extremely relevant book for our time. But the thing is, are we going to listen? Or are we just going to be like the 8th century B.C. church? Ignore it. Now some of you may be thinking, who can possibly ignore this from Amos? Who can possibly ignore what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1? A lot of people. A lot. There are billions of people who will ignore the words of God. And I'm just going to mention two of the larger camps because there are a lot of subsets, but I just want to mention two of the larger ones. One large group is composed of people who are in bondage to institutionalized religion. When their religion has caused people to lose their sense of discernment, they're so caught up in their religion that they can't tell the difference between reality and their religious idealism. And so this is what's happened in parts of our world. Have you guys heard of that story in Sudan where that Christian woman is sentenced to a hundred lashes and she's sentenced to death? She just gave birth last week in prison. And the reason is, is because Sharia law prevented her from being a Christian. Or what happened in Pakistan to the woman who was stoned to death by her own family because she didn't want to marry her cousin. And so she married someone else and she was stoned to death. It was an honor killing. And there are Christians in this camp too. Please don't think that I'm trying to pick on another religion. There are a ton of Christians in this camp. The institutionalized religion camp. Another large camp is the group of people who live in post-Christian society. Namely Western Europe and North America. Now in the United States, 
the expression of Christianity, it's a constant battle. Isn't it for us? In the United States, there's this double standard of discrimination, I feel. I help a lot with church planting, especially in the Bay Area, and I help with church planters in Oakland. And so we've gone to the school district in Oakland to rent space. If they told the same thing to another group that they've told these church planters and me, they would have a discrimination lawsuit on their hand. If they just said the same exact thing to another group. And so we've warned them before. We're like, are you sure you want to say this? Are you sure you want to present it to us like this? Because I suggest that you would change your wording. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. See, we have a picture of being God forsaken, I think. It's a society that lives in chaos. And you look at verses 9 and 10 again. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. You notice that phrase, I will, in these verses? That's the future. And that's God saying that. And what was supposed to be celebratory will be turned into mourning and lament. And we're here just happy and thinking that everything's going good and we have morality right and we're just celebrating in the stuff God will judge. Verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. There will come a time when people come seeking the word of the Lord, but they won't be able to find it. There's going to be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Sometimes I wonder if that's happening already in the United States. How much preaching is biblical anymore in the United States? If you go visit 10 churches here, how many of them will really go through the scriptures? I don't think much of the preaching is biblical anymore here. I think there's a lot of talk about the Bible and about stories of the Bible, referencing the Bible here and there and kind of taking things and moving them out of context. But I'm not so sure there's a lot of preaching of the Bible, using the Bible itself. And so a lot of times I wonder if our country is in a biblical famine because we've had generations turn their back on God. And what happens when generations turn their back on God? Verses 13 and 14. In that day the lovely virgins and young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The thing that happens is following generations suffer. And we get younger generations pondering the meaning and the purpose of life, looking for fulfillment, but fainting for thirst because what's around them is empty. What hope is there when God is not in your life? Now looking at our own country today, we've experienced the highest unemployment in the history of the United States. 
were carrying the largest debt in the entire history of the United States, over $1 trillion of debt in student loans. And the global picture for peace does not look good. There are more slaves today than in any other time in human history. Now, I don't blame the younger generations for what they've inherited. All that junk happened generations before them. The thing is this. We influence future generations with our decisions. A generation turning their back on God will not leave the next generation in a better place. It leaves that future generation faint for thirst. Now, God is very patient. We know this. He's given us many warnings. Yet how many times have we not returned to Him? How many have not listened to Him? He's given us His truth, His Word, but many have not believed that it is true or right. And perhaps some folks believe that God's judgment only appears in grandiose ways. That hell is something that we experience after we die. And I don't think that's true. Just as I don't think it's true that you experience heaven after you die. I think you can experience both heaven and hell right now. And I think God gives us glimpses of life without Him, which is hell, in our everyday lives. And so sure, there's this greater judgment of God, His wrath to be had in the future. But there are occurrences of God's absence in our everyday world. Just take a look at divorce for an example. Now, if you've been divorced, please don't take this as judgment from me. I don't know your circumstances, and I'm not here to judge you. I just want to point out some things about divorce, and I'm not saying that divorce is the ultimate no-no. That's why I'm bringing that up. I'm just bringing this up because the fabric of the family is really tied into divorce, especially with these staggering statistics. Over 40% of first marriages over 60% of second marriages, over 70% of third marriages end in divorce. And did you know this? That living together prior to getting married increases the chances of getting divorced by as much as 40%. Now these statistics were pulled from a law firm, a secular law firm, so I'm not giving you some Christian bias or anything like this. Right? This is a, a family law firm that I've pulled this data from, and if you want that reference, please come up to me and say, I just don't want to give you this thing to have you guys start looking at stuff and contemplating divorce. Anyway, but this is what I did when I was looking up divorce statistics. And so here are some statistics about how divorce has affected families, namely children. Children from divorced families are two times more likely to drop out of high school. 25% of adolescents who have experienced divorce become disengaged from their families. Children who have experienced a divorce frequently have lower academic achievement. Children from divorced families are more likely to have academic, behavioral, and psychological problems. Now, this isn't always the case. This is statistical. I come from a divorced home, and I'm on the other side of those statistics. So I bring all of this up because much of the challenges in families today stem from unhealthy relationships inside the home, where people don't have a healthy sense of what is good for their family, and the effects of a generation affects the generations that follow. And the moral compasses of people are just off. Listen to these statistics. One-third of divorce litigation is caused by an online affair. And get this, 
54% of those men believe that online affairs are not adultery. 75% of men think online pornography is okay to visit. That includes you guys here. 30% of cyber affairs escalate from electronic correspondence, your social media stuff, your emails, your whatever, to telephone correspondence, talking live, to personal contact. 30%. See, it's what's behind the divorce that is concerning. It's not the actual divorce itself that you do in court and that sort of stuff. It's all this other stuff that's behind that. It's the absence of God in relationship to him that we see unfolding in relationships people have with one another. And there are different parts of people's lives which appear to have been forsaken by God when God has let us be in our own debased minds. Check these statistics out about suicide rates. They've increased all across the board for male and female no matter what the age is. All across the board, no matter what country. In people 35 to 64 years old, the increase this year, 28%. An increase of 48% in males 50 to 59 years old. An increase of 60% in women 60 to 64 years old. Psychology Today, January 2014 issue. Something is seriously wrong. And it seems as though God has allowed for us to live in our foolish, man-made morality and values, no longer able to hear his words. Today is the highest rate of slavery in the history of the world. More people are medicated today than ever before in the history of the world. God is telling us something, and it's just that not everyone hears it. And you know what the message, folks, who can't hear from him is? That life separate from God is hell. So you see how relevant the Bible is. You'd think something a shepherd, a dresser of sycamore figs, wrote in 8th century B.C. couldn't be relevant, couldn't possibly relevant to us today. But here's the thing. It's the Word of God. And it will be relevant for eternity. I wonder if our nation is already at the place where we can't hear God. We don't turn to the Word of God anymore. And we haven't for a while. In fact, we're trying to get it erased off of buildings and public spaces. We're trying to just get rid of everything that resembles that. And instead, we turn to politicians, and we turn to economists, and we turn to environmentalists, and sociologists, and scientists, and the other experts in their field, and we turn to them. And so generation after generation, our nation is being led away from the Word of God and looking to man. And at some point, this happens. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. See, at some point, God's patience runs out and his long-suffering runs out. So the question for us right now, today, is where is your relationship with God today? And it's not just in regards to you being to church. It's not a religious thing. But your everyday life and every part of your life is your relationship with God in a good and right place today. 
Or are you that rotting fruit that is just about to be thrown out in judgment? Let's pray. Father, I pray for mercy. I pray for grace, just as Amos did in 8th century B.C. I ask God that you would relent. But I also know, Lord, that you already have. You've already done that, Lord. And I also know, Lord, that we would be judged in comparison to the plumb line. And right after that evaluation to the plumb line comes your wrath. So Lord, may you speak to your church. May you put in us a sense of urgency to share your gospel with those who don't know you. I ask God that our relationship with you would be made right this morning if we're off, if we don't measure up to the plumb line, that we would make those steps get in line with you. In Jesus' name, amen.